0: God's word is our great and shall be ours forever to spread. Ever witnessed a child's birthday party with a pinata hanging from a tree branch? That hollow paper and glue thing in the shape of an animal? The children beat it with a stick. We have some strange customs, don't we? And when the piñata breaks open and all the candy spills out, what do the children do? Stand back and say to the child next to them, No, you go first. And after you have the candy you like and as much as you like, then I will see if there is some left for me. No, they don't do that. They rush in and pile on top of each other and claw to get the best candy and as much candy they can. The child who stands back and lets others go first isn't probably getting any candy. Nice guys finish last. So how do we get our share? In the verses before us this week from Mark chapter 9, the master teacher helps us to understand the true nature of greatness. Whoever would be first, he says. Let's start our study with prayer. Sanctify us through your word, Lord. Your word is truth. Chapter 9, verse 30. They, that is Jesus and his disciples, left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man, That was Jesus' favorite name for himself, the Son of Man. It ought to be one of our favorite names for Jesus, too, because it reminds us that he has come to be our brother. As our brother, he will suffer all that we undeserving brothers and sisters ought to have suffered. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. This is the second time in Mark's account that Jesus clearly teaches what is about to happen to him. But he adds a new detail. Someone will betray him. Someone close to him is going to hand him over to his enemies. You would think that this would prompt the question, Who? Who of us is going to betray you, Lord? But instead... They went on to argue about which of them was the greatest. We cannot help but marvel at Jesus' patience with his disciples, with their spiritual dullness, just as we cannot help but marvel at Jesus' patience with us. As we think about all the times, we did not show more interest, more desire to learn about spiritual things, because we were enamored with earthly things. Verse 33, They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. They didn't understand what Jesus was talking about, and they didn't want to ask him about it, because they were busy thinking of themselves. Their minds were on the mighty kingdom that Jesus would one day, maybe one day soon, set up. No doubt, they would be important officials in that kingdom. The debate, the argument, in fact, was about which of them would be the most important. Isn't that what is at the heart of almost every relationship problem? Who's most important? Who's the boss? Who gets their way? And the answer is obvious, isn't it? I am the most important. As Professor Daniel Deutschlander asks in his commentary, what marriage or work or neighborhood battles don't have this implication lurking in the background? Again, marvel at Jesus' patience with them and us. He does not say, just once, just once, can't you listen? I'm on the way to the cross to pay for the crimes you have committed. What's important right now is not who of you is the most important. What is important right now is my love for you and what I am about to do to demonstrate that love. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he says, wanting to be the greatest is a good thing. The question is, what's your definition of greatness? Verse 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. What is the definition of greatness? How does one become first? It's not a matter of titles and being able to tell others what to do or a matter of getting your way. One becomes great, Jesus teaches, by becoming the servant of everyone else, by seeking the best interest of others, by thinking everyone is over me and entitled to my attention and my service. When we think of all the times we made it about ourselves, all the times that we were focused on getting what we want, these words are like a mirror that shows us our sin and our desperate need of forgiveness. But these words also serve as a guide showing us how to live in thankfulness for that forgiveness. Jesus now gives an example. Starting with the most needy, little children, he tells us how we are to serve them. Verse 36. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Jesus wrapping his arms around a little child. In doing so, he's, he's showing parents just how important their work is. He's showing teachers and Sunday school teachers, health care workers, and those who care for the mentally and physically disabled and for the aged, all those who care for the needy. He's showing them that their work may not seem important in the eyes of the world, but in Jesus' eyes, it is the greatest work. And when we do these things, these simple acts of service for the ones Jesus sends for us to serve, we are serving him. But this presents a problem in John's mind. What if someone outside of their group is doing a service in Jesus' name? Verse 38, Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Were the disciples here concerned about Jesus or about their own position and rights? If it was the former, well and good. But it appears to have been the latter. In effect, they were saying, hey, we're the ones who get to drive out demons, not you. Jesus teaches us here that if someone outside of our group is doing works of Christian charity, we are not to stop them. Such charity will be rewarded in heaven, even if it's something as simple as handing out a cup of cool water. Notice here how Jesus values the good works God has given us to do. No, our good works do not contribute to our salvation. That is by grace alone through the merits of Christ alone. But good works, as a response of faith, are important. I'm paraphrasing Deutschlander here. Hold the door for someone who has their hands full. Say thank you to the overworked clerk or caregiver. Yield your place in line to someone who seems to be in a real hurry. For, for doing such things, we will receive a reward. Now, let's be clear. Jesus is not saying here, all that really matters is that you do acts of kindness in my name and then teach whatever you want. To say something bad about Jesus, literally to speak evil about him, is to contradict his word, to teach falsely. So let's not draw the false conclusion that Jesus is saying faithfulness to his word doesn't matter. Only good deeds matter. Remember, Jesus also says, If you remain in my word, you are really my disciples. So, to deny Jesus' teaching is to be against him. Instead of being concerned that other groups of Christians might be doing the things Christ has given us the privilege of doing, we ought to be concerned about something else, Jesus says. Verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones those who believe in me, to stumble. It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus has been talking about good works. What is the greatest good work that can be done for a child? Bringing that child to Jesus bringing them to faith and nurturing that faith. Conversely, the most horrible thing would be to cause someone, especially a child, to lose their faith, and so to end up where the worms that eat them do not die. An adult has the knowledge to defend themselves against false teaching, but a child, whether a child in years or a child in the faith, doesn't yet have the ability to defend themselves against the false teaching when it comes. The consequence of entrapping a little one is horrible. It is more horrible than having a huge stone tied around your neck to make sure that you drown and being thrown into the sea. The consequence of trapping yourself is just as horrible. It seems to me that the NIV translation here, along with most translations, can be misleading. The word used here, as well as back in verse 42, means to fatally trap. Jesus is not talking about sins of weakness. He is talking about rejecting him by embracing sin. Is Jesus encouraging self-mutilation in these verses? No. Our eyes, our feet, our hands are not the cause of sin. They are only tools. So what is Jesus teaching here? First, He's teaching how serious sin really is. We dare never take it lightly. Second, he's teaching that the source of our sin is our heart. That is our very nature. So even if we cut off our hands and pluck out our eyes, we will not save ourselves from the horror of hell. We need to be rescued. We need a Savior. The goal of Jesus' teaching here is to bring about repentance, that we confess our sins, turn from them, And cling to his cross for pardon. Certainly the images that Jesus uses here to describe hell are terrifying. And they teach us that the torments of hell are unending. Verse 49. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. What is this salt? It is the word of God. You've heard the expression rubbing salt in the wound, or maybe you have gotten salt in an open wound. It stings. Sometimes it even burns like fire. God's word stings as it points out our sin. It shows us how incapable we are of saving ourselves, and that burns. But it is also good as it points us then to a savior. How does salt lose its saltiness? How does God's word lose its saltiness? Well, when we teach the law of God as though God, were not really serious about his commands or that he will pardon us as long as we make some half-hearted effort. It also loses its saltiness when we put conditions on God's love. God will love you if you do such and such. Even after we come to faith, God's law remains important to us. It shows us our need for a Savior. Its warnings help us in our struggle with our sinful nature. It guides us in thankful living and in serving one another. And as we serve one another, we will be at peace with one another. That's as far as we will go this week. Next week, we pick it up with chapter 10. Brothers and sisters, go in peace. Live in harmony with one another. Serve the Lord with gladness.